0: Welcome to the Frank's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Leo. Burke Daugherty is a genuine American anthropologist, explorer, and connector of the world. Burke makes his own symbols under the brand name Burke's Works and sells additional artisanal symbols under the company and website name bronzepie.com. Burke is responsible for bringing Day symbols from Japan to the United States and is an advocate for artisan symbol makers.
1: Toshio's process is completely quantifiable. If he wants to make a change on a symbol, he can change either the backing plate shape, he can change the pressure that he's putting on, the speed that it's spinning. All these different variables are actually quantifiable. This first part of our
0: conversation is an overview of Burke's journey into symbol making and distribution. We discuss his connection to Koei Day cymbals and other facets of introducing a new foreign product into the United States' music instrument industry. The second part of the interview, released in a couple of weeks, is a segment I'm especially proud of, where Burke and I demo and discuss several of his cymbals as the main focus of the episode. I hope you'll enjoy this episode of the Frank's Percussion Podcast brought to you by Co-E-Day Symbols USA and bronzepie.com Good morning. Good morning. Hello Burke.
1: How are you? Well, oh, I'm fine, you know. Actually having a working holiday, so everything's a little bit chaotic.
0: Cool. But Symbols, good. For <laughs> Symbols for the holiday.
1: Symbols for the holiday.
0: Yeah. How's the weather down there in Virginia? What part of Virginia?
1: Charlottesville, Virginia. It's been hot and humid lately, and lots of uh, crazy, violent thunderstorms here lately. So uh, it's soggy. (laughs) It's the the
0: season, right?
1: Yeah, it is. We
0: got some rain here last night, too. It was nice, actually. So, Burke, I have you listed here as the symbolsmith of Burke Works Symbols. How cool. But there's more, the distributor and purveyor under your company name bronze pie mm. of Coeday, pgb downing arts timothy roberts burn and nugis symbols did yes. i and also emj and also emj okay is there any other sort of working business title that i missed
1: uh no no, I just sort of dabble in, these are like, I have the bronze pie, burk's works and Coey day, and they kind of all intertwine together. Each one sort of supports the other and one capacity or the other, depending on what I'm doing shows or sales or fabrication.
0: I see. And we're going to get into Koei day in a little bit. Cause I have some of those symbols here, but. Can I start with a joke before we start talking about your work specifically? By all means. I was looking for a cymbal joke, and I found one yesterday. And actually, it was another symbol maker. He had posted a clip from the Fred Armisen stand-up special. It's called Stand Up for Drummers. Okay. It's on Netflix, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch it. If not, like, tonight, then by tomorrow. But uh, Fred Armisen, he goes... There's only there's only one word that drummers use to describe a symbol. There's just one, you know, and he hits some symbols on stage and he goes, hmm, it's dark. (laughs) (laughs) It's yeah, it's dark. It's dark. Yeah. And I, you know, I I was like, yeah, there's my symbol joke.
1: Yeah, we all tend to use the same words and say the same thing with symbols, even though they're all completely different <laughs> in their own unique way. Of it gets course, a little silly.
0: No, it's it, it's hard for you know, like where do you start to learn the differences? I think your drum shop guy here and there, your you know, your big company websites might have some of their own marketing vocabulary, but that's why I'm really excited to do this with you because I. You know, you're as someone who's making symbols, the whole process is virtually in your hands, and then you and then you're selling symbols as well, like critical part of the operation. So we'll get to some words, I guess, some some words besides dark in a few. I guess let's start with your symbol making journey, Burke. Please tell us what got you started crafting your own symbols because that is. So awesome to me.
1: I tend to always have this fallacy in thinking that if I want something and I don't have access to it, either by proximity or monetarily, that, oh, I'll just make that. I've always been a maker of things, I always had a shop space and tools available. And I, I sort of segued into drumming in general. I'm actually a bassist at heart. How and dare I you? I play bass for... <laughs> played bass for you know, approximately 20, 25 years before I switched over to drums. And that came about by I uh, was playing electric bass in, in jazz context to some degree, and then more in the prog-rock, quasi-fusion genre. And the problem we had locally was there was one definitive jazz drummer locally. Everybody else was more or less rock or country or whatever, pop music of sorts. And the, the problem was twofold, a couple upright bassists moved to town. And uh, there's only about 15 O's that played jazz. So the, and they were just better jazz bassists. So the bass gigs sort of dry up. And then the problem came that when one, if the drummer that was used for jazz, jazz gigs had a gig, the, everybody else was out for having the possibility of having a gig on the same night. So I decided to switch over to drums. I already knew the songs and as a rhythm section person, you know, you know, what's coming, you know, how it's supposed to sound. And uh, as a bassist, I know what I like out of a drummer. So I just took on the task of being able to do essentially timekeeping, know the song. And I never got into too much into chops or soloing, you know, trade fours or eights or whatever, but just a meat and potatoes sort of swing drummer, which. Brings me over to symbols, without having to go in. I lived in Winchester, Virginia at the time, which is about an hour and a half, two hours from DC. Then you had let's see, eBay, and I'm, this is in reference to where you could purchase a jazz symbol. So, and this also at the same time a big shout out to Chad Anderson and Symbolholics. That website was really pivotal in the whole process of getting into symbol making, just symbols in general. So, reading about. Making cymbals, realizing that you don't have to have a lot of tooling to get started. The desire to find a perfect jazz symbol, all of that combined into my uh, desire to start making cymbals. And I just became intrigued with the whole process. It seems so elusive when you would read comments that were left by Mike Skiba and Craig Lortz and Matt Nolan, and many others. Uh, that first generation of independent cymbalsmiths. And then also hearing about roberto spitzikino all of that combined together to just drive me crazy and trying to find a jazz symbol then going through the process of purchasing off of ebay which was maddening i detested the whole uh auction bidding thing because it would just consume too much too much uh mental energy to keep up with that and i didn't like the feeling of competitive buying so I would buy a couple symbols off of uh, eBay, say direct from like an eBay store. And I purchased uh, a couple Matt Betis symbols, who was another one of the first generation uh, of cymbalsmiths, and they were wonderful symbols. And one thing led to another. So it was flea markets and yard sales, buying used symbols, trying to modify uh, those, buying stainless steel and going through the process of learning how to shape, and then I don't know, two or three years down the road from my starting point. Then I got my first blank. And, and that was the beginning of that. And, I, it, it, and I, I was doing this slowly. It wasn't like I was going crazy with hammering. And, you know, you factor in some a move, change of career. Symbol making was put on hold for a while. Then meeting Koei Day rekindled all of that. So, and now I'm up to my knees in it. Between the, the, on, uh, the online store was sort of an idea that I had to consolidate a bunch of independent cymbalsmiths on one website for people who are interested in independent symbolsmiths products and allow them to, you know, compare, contrast, shop in one location and tied that in with the Coe Day Cymbals distribution. It all just sort of intertwines together. And then, of course, the, the Koei Day symbols, which is more of a commercial venture in that regard, that put me into being able to go to shows like NAM and PASIC, Music City, even let's see, there's one in Baltimore. So it just, it just kind of gave me physical proximity to customers that were shopping for symbols, as well as online sales. And online sales for me are actually rather slow. I don't promote or push that hard with it. People who are usually interested, they find me one way or another. And then we just go through a process of talking back and forth about what they're looking for and seeing if I have something in my inventory that matches. And that usually kicks off about a week of correspondence before a sale is made. And I usually try to make that process stretch out so that it's not an impulse buy because of the pitfalls of buying something that you're not playing yourself it's always difficult
0: like uh, similar to sort of how we were looking at some symbols together we'll get into that in a little bit when you say that the koei day having some koei day pieces in your catalog got you into some drum shows elaborate on that
1: okay well koei day was not available in the u.s at all you could possibly buy something off online and have it shipped over. Or if you happen to be in Japan and go into a drum shop, you would run across Day Cymbals. My connection to Day Cymbals was just luck. It so happened that my wife, who is Japanese, is from Osaka. Day Cymbals is located in Osaka. And it's only like four blocks away from her family home. Now, I did not know about Day when I first went to Japan. The region or the area that she lives in is sort of a mixed, mixed-use mixed district where you would have family businesses on the first floor and then the family home is on the second floor. Small production businesses. You'll see somebody that has one lathe and they're machining something and then the next place is, a I don't know, they're making tatami mats and then the next place is a kimchi store. It's just this vast hodgepodge of... Businesses and uh, families uh, doing their thing. So, try to make this uh, short. I uh, was in Tokyo. We were out bar hopping one night. The music stores were open till like two or three a.m. Uh, in the bar district, and they'll have really fine instruments, and in there are a lot of vintage stuff. Is that uh, still so went...
0: Burke? I'm sorry to interrupt. They're, mm-hmm. they're open till two or three a.m. That sounds yeah. That's uncommon to me here. W- well, because you might they're... need an instrument. Last minute in Japan?
1: No, because you might be a little intoxicated and always wanted to have that, you know, 1963 Fender Stratocaster, and there it is. Or that's really the, you know, symbol.
0: That's the logic behind it?
1: That's my take on it because nobody needs an instrument at 2 a.m. that badly, (laughs) especially an extremely expensive one. So I think that's what's going on there. So, yeah, anyway, I was God in the uh, drum portion of that store and there were old K's, spizzichinos, and just wonderful symbol selection. And then I noticed the koi Day symbols and I asked my wife to read the tag on it. And she said, oh, that's just down the street from us. And so immediately, was, as soon as we got back to Osaka, I Google searched the, where they were and went to go, tried to visit and set up a, a time to come by and see this, the factory. And, and once I did, that just started a process. I got to know Toshio Koide, who was the president of the company and uh, chief cymbal smith. And we developed a relationship. And I um, was always stressing to him that I felt like that he should try to get his product into the U.S. market. He was a little reluctant to try to do that because it's a small outfit. It's essentially essentially a two-man outfit regarding cymbals. He has a lead cymbalsmith, and then he has two other guys who jump on and off from some of the menial tasks of cymbal making, like the quenching, bell stamping, shaping on the spin form machine, which we'll come back around to that in a little while. But his primary cymbalsmith does the actual lathing and bringing the cymbal to specs and tuning it. Toshio Koide does more of the actual hammer shaping work with the 703 series, which is their, their jazz series. It's, those symbols are produced probably the most closely to the traditional Turkish method of hammering. His other series use spin forming and then over hammering after the spin forming process. So that's more of a production setup. So you actually have more continuity and consistency, symbol to symbol. So anyway, uh, we we developed a relationship over, you know, the visits I would take to Japan. Then this other fellow, Haru uh, Yoshida, he also was a friend of Toshio Koide's. He is a buyer for Mikigaki, which is a music retailer in Japan. He is a U.S. buyer for products here, and he will... Find products and ship them back to Japan for sale. The two of us got together and Toshio-san was ready to step into the US market. We reassured him that it was going to be a long, slow process. He wouldn't have to worry about production demands and which it has been. It was far, far more difficult to get into the market than I ever imagined. You would think that if you have a, a new product that people's heads would turn, especially if it's a good product. And that's not necessarily the case. Just like with, I don't know, brand loyalty to anything, a new product is not so easy to entice somebody to switch over to it unless they're already predetermined to look for something different. So doing these large shows like Nam and PASIC has been pivotal in getting the exposure we need, and also social media, just to start to get our name out, get some recognition, get some buzz going, and it's finally starting to take off now. We, Tempano and Canada, Drum Center of Portsmouth, Hollywood Pro. Those are three shops that are carrying our product right now and they're moving. It's starting to move. So we're excited about that. And also we're getting a lot of attention from people when we do the NAMM shows now. Oh, Bert. we're sort of the new kid on the block.
0: This is a, a concerted grassroots effort here. I t- forgive me. I didn't realize quite the magnitude of the vision. That's amazing. And I, I know that getting getting a product, I was in food and beverage sales. There were some startup brands. I mean, to do it with something like a beverage, you need millions of dollars behind the launch and then be prepared to spend more millions of dollars over the next five to 10 years. But, you know, there's some grassroots here, which makes it like you're looking for organic growth. It's a slow burn, which is a word that you've used in the past. This is incredible.
1: It's 100% grassroots. The, I, if I, any earnings I get from COI Day are strictly off of a commission basis. You know, we get a small per diem when we do a show, which just kind of covers our basic expenses. I really haven't paid myself at all for the work done with Koei Day symbols, uh, in the USA, and that's by decision, by choice. Those funds kind of sit there. We use them now for studio time or photo shoots, things like that. I just love the product. I love the whole being able to step into this, attempting to step into this market and do something. And we're doing it on essentially no budget at all. That brings another thing that's kind of interesting into the differences between marketing and distribution in the U.S. versus Japan. In Japan, the manufacturer, just manufacturers. and then the distributor does the marketing and distribution and sales and handles all of that. Uh, in the US, the manufacturer uh, is involved in all of that, the branding, the marketing, distribution, deals, all of that. So it was a little bit of a it was a little frustrating at first to to you know ask for a, a marketing budget of some kind and the disconnect we had, He wasn't, he meaning Toshio-san wasn't, wasn't on his radar that the manufacturer would have to be involved in that. So learning, learning about cultural differences in business has been another learning curve and we finally have smoothed a lot of these things out. And we're uh, actually now getting some mobility and traction. It's just been a long process. And we're all, all of us that are involved on the US team, we all have day jobs, you know, full-time jobs that we're involved with. So. Whenever we do a show, you know, you take off for, even though it's a three-day show, for me, it's it's eight, nine, ten days worth of work. Prep everything, load everything up, logistics of getting everything there, go through the show, and then unpack it all and try to clean it all back up and, you know, have my, my storage room look in decent shape. Uh, it's a lot of work.
0: That speaks... The marketing, the differences between Japanese production versus mark to marketing and the American way of doing it, from the little bit that I know about Japanese culture, that's, that speaks to like their perfectionism over there, right? Like, no, I focus on one thing only. It's making symbols. Mm-hmm. You focus mm-hmm. on selling symbols. That's how we both get to be the best at yes. what we're doing.
1: Yeah, cool. That's super and- cool. And I don't claim to understand all the cultural differences. You know, it, it's, it's always a process of discovery. You don't usually realize there's a difference until after the fact. And then everybody's yelling <laughs> and then you at each kind other. Of backpedal and figure <laughs> it out. And we work it out. It's fun though. I mean, we, we enjoy it. And sometimes the confusion is quite humorous after we've, we've honed in what the, what the issue was. So anyway, it's, it's been a fun learning process across the board. I don't consider myself a businessman, a salesman. I am, I am constantly treading water and trying to figure something out that's in front of me that, that's an obstacle and trying to you know, get through it or around it or whatever. It's an ongoing learning process. And I'm sort of late to the game. I'm 56. This all started four years ago, as far as officially launching Koei Day in the US. And you know, four years, you would think, well, why would it take four years to get is. Far as we have, which is not very far, and the answer is it's difficult and it's expensive. To do an AM show is, it's a five-digit expense for a small company, and that's just huge. to be there, just to buy the just booth, to, just to be there. Yeah, and and that's not even a show where you sell off of the floor. Your hope is to. You know catch the interest of a retailer or somebody that's you know in the business and uh, that's looking for a new product um, and and just learning how that all works you know the first Nam show we did and I've now I can spot this when I go to a Nam show and I see other new companies there you know the first Nam show we had no idea how the process worked. We just rented the booth, showed up, set up our stuff, and then sort of stood there waiting for people to come into the booth and then after day one, you learn to loosen up a little bit. You start pulling people in. How to work it a little bit. Then we, it you just realize that there's way more to a Nam show than just setting up your booth. You have to go to where there are gatherings, do the networking. Everything that really matters about a Nam show being beneficial doesn't really happen on the floor. It happens off the floor later on down the line in an email or, you know, phone call from a contact you made. You don't know how it's all going to play out because everybody's just sort of asking questions and st- sticking their toe in the water. You, I, we've yet to have somebody just jump in and say, yeah, I'll take all of these. You know, that hasn't happened. Usually we have to kind of find out what they're looking for. And our, our basic approach is there's no minimum order. And we set them up with what we know to be the best sellers. And we try to reduce the risk for the retailer and give them the opportunity to sample the product, sell the product, and not have to commit to a bunch of crazy terms, like we demand this much floor space and minimum purchases. And our margins are pretty tight. We're trying to keep our price point very competitive with the other major companies, with the exception of the 703 series, which is many times it's Three hundred dollars more than a typical Koei Day symbol, or for that matter, a Zildjian Sabian, Paist, anything else. It's it's just a it's just a it's just a long long process to try to figure this stuff out. And we pick up tips and hints from people along the way that like what we're doing, and they give us suggestions. These are people that have been in the business for a while, from you know, that were involved with companies that you uh, you know the brands. Um, everybody says it's just going to take a long time, you know, in talking with management at Tama, it took them 10 years to acquire their first retailer. Wow. We did that in three years. Now things are different. Now you have social media and the internet. So that just propels everything along much faster just due to access, but still it gives you an example of how long it took them to obtain the recognition that they have, it just took a decade. So we we're we're experiencing the same uh, growth curve, it's slow, but we finally now have some traction and things are starting to happen. And we're just tickled to death.
0: Yeah, that's so exciting, right? I mean, yes, just to see the whole a whole nother world that you know, and, and congratulations, There, not everybody gets to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm excited just to be talking to you about it.
1: So there's a lot of dumb luck involved in this whole endeavor that I'm in. Yes, sir. Um, Being at the right place at the right time, you know, kind of spotting an opportunity and not being afraid to insert yourself into it and just ask questions and see what it is that you can can do for yourself and for them all together. And we just try to keep kind of even playing field, you know, you scratch my back, I scratch yours, that kind of thing is what has kept this whole process going. And also we have acquired another person in our you know on our team now. Chris America, he's down in Orlando, Florida. Chris is one of these people that can tell you what symbol stands somebody particular artist used in 1973 and what sticks they had they were endorsing and then he knows all the product lines from the last 50 years and then he completely understands the whole retail process from working in music stores and also understands the whole artist Endorsement process. So Chris has been invaluable and a lot of our gains that we've enjoyed were because of Chris's knowledge, experience, and hard work. And Chris has worked under the same rewards program that I am, which is it's commission-based and we're all just kind of playing the long game. And we also have a specialist with orchestral symbols, which we're trying to push and we're trying to get into the education market. That's something that's new. For Day. I mean, they've been doing this all along in Japan. In fact, it was classical symbols, orchestral symbols that got Toshio involved in the symbol making process and business altogether. It wasn't kit symbols; it was orchestral symbols because of his love of classical music and because
0: they also make. I'd like to get back to your symbol making in a, in a moment, but they also <laughs> make. Timpani bowls over there at Cowie Day.
1: They did. They don't currently okay. do that. Yes, he. Had, you know, he his his metal shop, metal fabrication shop, is. It's been a family-run business for a couple generations. I mean, while symbols are being made in a different portion of the factory, they'll be making parts for washing machines and then parts for metro cars. Just little widgets that they're subcontracted to fabricate for for anybody who needs a part fabricated out of, and they specialize in spin forming not so much milling and that's or casting so that's how symbols work in his shop because of the machinery he has to do spin forming i've read Um, about
0: spin forming in the symbol book but i didn't quite get a grasp on how it worked Could you just explain the spin forming process?
1: Certainly. Okay. So spin forming, if you were to look around your house and see an aluminum lampshade or a stainless steel salad bowl, these products were either stamped or spun form and spin forming is what you would have is a, a positive shape of the item you want to make on a flat disc and it spins and there'll be a center point whether it's a hole or held at, uh, the the blank is held in place by compression against this plate and the plate will spin and then there's going to be an arm that has a large metal steel disk on the end that's a pressure roller and just like on a phonograph except it's reverse it goes from the center outwards rather than from the outside in the the plate spins, the arm pushes the pressure roller into the blank piece of metal and forces it to the shape that is behind it. And the machine that, that Toshio-san has, is a, it's a CNC machine, it's computerized. It has There is some manual control that's taking place, but it can put an incredible amount of pressure against the blank piece of metal and force it into the shape that's behind it and also with symbol making bronze also stiffens when it's been compressed or cold work. Cold work meaning that you're working it at room temperature. It's not hot or molten. So this machine can apply a lot, so much pressure that it can actually uh, put a little bit of taper into the symbol as, it's, as it compresses it and squishes it outward as the arm moves from the center to the outside. Oh, against wow. Against the spinning plate. And what that allows for is every single symbol that comes off of that machine will have the exact same shape. So that gives him continuity in his product. The hammering process that you see people doing on YouTube, like in Turkey, there's so many variables involved. You'll see videos where there's four or five people, symbols are being passed from person to person, or even when one person does it, there's there's gonna be a difference from symbol to symbol because of... I don't know how hard you're hitting that day maybe differences in the blank slight differences in shape so toshio's process is completely quantifiable if he wants to make a change on a symbol he can change either the backing plate shape he can change the pressure that he's putting on the speed that it's spinning all these different variables are actually quantifiable so if he wants to do R&D, it's very easy to do because you have a basis that you're starting with and you can change your variables 10% this way, 10% that way, and see the effect and be able to return back to the original or go to this new product or quantization of it easily. It's so funny, that has really, pushes it. his R&D ahead quickly. Sorry, it's, I didn't mean to No,
0: no, I, I'm jumping in. I'm, it's funny, that's sounds like the scientific process that we can all understand, but when it comes down to like making changes, I mean, you'll still have so many variables that it'll make your head spin, right? It's like one of these things, you kind of got to get started, you're working it out. Mm -hmm. I mean, to to oversimplify it here, but just when it comes to making a change, you know, uh, who, (laughs) who can really say Maybe besides Kohide, Day, he's a master symbol maker at this point, right?
1: Yes, uh, and I also want to say that that he started his symbol making the traditional way with a you know handheld hammer, Turkish blanks, and hammering them out, the way everybody starts. So he didn't immediately have this machine shop up and ready to roll. He said, "Oh, I'm just going to make symbols and then start off." No, he started by hammering and getting to know the process of symbol making the way we all do. And then he converted over his shop portions of it anyway, to symbol making, because just a tool up to make a symbol is several thousand dollars. The cost of milling out that back plate, you don't get to just, you know, oh, that's not working so well. We'll just make another one. You want to have it all right before Mm -hmm. you start investing in that tooling. It adds up quickly. So, so he was at, in that regard, he was able to fuse traditional symbol making with his, running a metal shop and tying it all together. And the amazing thing is, is that he's not a musician. He's not a drummer or a cl- orchestral percussionist. He just, you know, like, he liked the particular sounds of certain symbols and just started trying to recreate that. And then along the way, in order to make some different tonalities, he has an interest in metallurgy. So that brought on the whole prospect of his proprietary alloys and the the alloys make such a huge difference in in the tonality of the symbols they bring on qualities that typical that are not typical to your normal b20 alloy that's used in most symbols
0: we i'm going to ask you more about the alloys in the listening segment i wanted to get back to you making symbols but while we're on koei day you said earlier he is not a foundry right correct okay so how is he experimenting with these alloys to the extent that you just described like he's 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 ordering them from somewhere he's got he's friends with a foundry just what's that process
1: like okay there's osaka copper works it's a foundry in japan that specifically works with copper based alloys and a lot of the products that they produce are for research electronics, anything anybody needs in an industrial commercial context for specialty copper alloys. So as an example, the Hadron Collider, this foundry made all the copper components for that because they had to meet really high standards, specific alloys. And they had. it's almost as much laboratory as foundry. When I went to visit that foundry, I was prepared to go into a a dirty, smoky facility, and it wasn't. It was, we could have eaten lunch off the floor. In the did you say the
0: Hadron Collider?
1: Yes. What
0: Probably the Hadron connected. Collider for-
1: I, I, you know, the large, I think like CERN, whatever it's going on over in, in Europe, the Particle Collider, the underground- Yeah. That, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> whatever they- This goes
0: deep. We're gonna yeah, burst yeah. a hole in the space-time continuum when we get into the listening segment. That's what's going on here, Berg. Yeah,
1: you know, all our symbols are gonna grow, start glowing.
0: You're right, I uh, can't wait. Yeah, that'll
1: yeah, be. Yeah. <laughs> so that so he, through and also he works with uh, universities that uh, have uh, physics departments. They've done a lot of spectral analysis of alloys, metals. There's a type of process that can visually chart a symbol's vibrations by you know measuring i guess fluctuations in the vibrations and visually chart that out they've done studies on the effects of hammering on symbols so there's it was tied in with the university with the osaka foundry copper works foundry all this came together to bring about the alloys that he's able to use for his symbol company
0: by special order because he's crafting these listening to them and ma- and then making adjustments
1: to the alloys. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Well, or just wanted to have okay, we going back to the quantifying his manufacturing process. If you have a symbol of a particular shape and weight and it's it's I I don't like to use the word tension, but it's stiffness the right. a certain way and you want to really change its sonic characteristics drastically in a different direction, you can change the alloy rather than change the shape or the weight. And then it opens up a door to a whole new sonic palette and still maintains certain variables that you know work. So, and this is a little bit of conjecture on my part, but I know that Toshio-san's approach is methodical. He tries to maintain control over variables and be able to say definitively doing this created this change. And he can point to why there's not a lot of guesswork involved with it. Stepping into the world of, of alloys. I mean, people have been using different alloys for symbols all along. He's not the only one to have a high 10 content in his symbols he's added other metals to bring about different sonic characteristics. And some of the metals also contribute to the manufacturing process. So you up the tin content, but you add another metal to help with malleability in the manufacturing process. And any change that you do to a blank is going to have an effect on the the sonic qualities of the symbol as well. So there's a lot of experiment, experimentation and a lot of prototypes are made. And it just keeps you know expanding off of what knowledge he has gained, and gives him an idea of which direction to go for his next venture. So we have a couple new series that are coming out. And ironically, they're, they're made out of B20, his particular B20. So they're not, he changed the hammering and shape aspects as opposed to the alloy to create these new series. So there are many different ways to change the sound of a symbol. It doesn't have to be as involved as creating new alloys. I'm just filled with so much wonder
0: because this is happening on the other side of the world in a different culture like we spoke about before. But, you know, it doesn't it doesn't even matter. Like there's somebody so focused on making something better, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. how so. So let's jump back now. How does this tie into your symbol making journey learning about koide? How long had you been making symbols before you learned about these koide
1: pieces? Off and on spread out over 10 years. Okay. And, and I really kept it to the back, you know, burner. I was I really didn't have any interest or even the really the capacity to step into the symbol world prior to getting involved with koide. Because my interests are varied, I have other things that I'm into. It could be, you know, one of my many hobbies. Symbol making I always enjoyed, but I wasn't head over heels with it. I was in love with symbols. I do love them, but I, I really didn't see myself stepping into the uh, symbol smithing world on a commercial level of any degree ever. It was, this was something I was doing for myself for fun.
0: Okay. Though, you, you'd mentioned some stainless steel blanks earlier that you'd hammered. Mm. And if I'm being, if I can recall honestly, it was stainless steel symbols I had see, come across them on Nikki Moon's Instagram that probably was the first thing that put me on to this new artisan symbol making. And we're talking only a few years ago. So, I'm, you know, relatively new to even knowing this world exists but he had made some stainless steel symbols, and demoed them on his page, and they just look wild. You know, they get that glimmer, that almost oily glimmer.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you still have any of your original blanks that you made out of stainless steel? Were they useful to you at all?
1: Only two. I sort of like stainless steel for sort of like exotic effects symbols. Yeah. Um, I think stainless steel works great for flat rides because it just is... More dry, and it has a really strange crash to it. Also, sort of chinas or pangs. And then any other traditional symbols, they're okay. They have their own niche in the symbol spectrum. You can't expect them to do things that bronze will do. But there are several people out there that that make wonderful symbols out of stainless steel. Mike Mangiello was one who spent an incredible amount of time working specifically with stainless steel before he ever jumped into bronze. Stainless steel is a great way to get to understand some of the basic parameters of symbol hammering and the effects that shape and weight are all connected, interconnected. it also is a cost effective way to do it. A right, piece of right. stainless steel is, you know, tens of dollars rather than hundreds of dollars.
0: Were you getting them as blanks in the stainless or were you kind of f- forming them on your own? All like...
1: I would just go to the local metal supplier and rummage through their scrap bin and see if I could find 20 or 22 gauge stainless steel. And it would just be a square piece. And I would take it back to my shop and, you know, cut it out, hammer it, drill the center hole and go through that whole process. So, it was really working with just a piece of raw material. Anybody could could do this and you can do it on the cheap. You just need, you know, a couple hammers and a large chunk of steel to act as an anvil. And also stainless steel moves more slowly than bronze. You're also working with a f- piece of metal that is essentially flat to start with that is sort of relaxed. It doesn't have any internal stresses in it. So, it gives you a nice easy starting palette to build off of. A symbol blank comes sometimes, you know, relatively warped up, their internal stress is still left in it from the, the heating and annealing process. You have to work around these strange anomalies in the blank to complete a symbol, and they can be problematic, especially when you're learning how to manipulate the bronze plate in the beginning, because bronze will move much faster than stainless steel. Strange things will happen along the way, and you have to figure out why the, why why all of this is taking place, and it may be a problem that you created three hours ago, and it manifests now, and uh, you have to sort of try to figure out why you're having this particular issue and how it became a problem and how to solve it. So there's a lot of trial and error in the symbol-making process. That's why starting with stainless steel is sort of a great place to begin, because it, it's a neutral, clean starting point.
0: That sounds very mystical, almost. There's all kinds of problems, you know, discrepancies, differences, and yeah, it's mystical.
1: You have to have a type of personality that can deal with frustration. If you're, if you're a hothead or you like quick uh, returns on your effort, uh, this is not the craft for you 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 have to kind of be prepared to just get your ass kicked repeatedly until you start to get results and there's another problem with this craft is it's there's a 50-50 chance that if you're reasonably good at working with your hands and material and you have a good sort of a builder's knack there's a good chance that you can make a viable symbol on your first attempt and think oh this is easy and then your next eight attempts just suffer greatly and you don't know why because you just marched into it and you go to your second blank and it's nothing's working out and you don't know why um and you have to sort of step back and be humbled by the whole process and accept the the wasted piece of bronze is part of learning
0: Um, that's like beginner's luck almost but that yeah
1: there's a high beginner's luck factor to it so you know you'll there everybody kind of jumps into this indie scene you know you want to it, it has this little glory factor to it that's exaggerated the process of just being able to repeatedly make a decent symbol in and of itself is a huge stumbling block and you haven't even gotten around to to trying to sell them or matching a symbol with people's needs all that whole other element how what to charge for your symbol How good is your symbol? It's so subjective. The whole whole field is fraught with opinions, subjectivity, variables, and you just have to kind of muscle through until you get your product to a certain point that you start to catch people's attention. That's, That's the indicator right there is if people actually stop and say, I'd like to buy that. How much is it? That's it's a hell of a long journey from the first one to somebody saying, "Yeah, I want to buy that symbol." Usually, you're you're giving them away just to get them, you know, out of your shop. <laughs> just you, just take it, you know. Uh, you don't want any money for it. You, know, you just get get rid of it. It's, it's so, uh, at the or, so,
0: a thought has dawned on me since we've been chatting is about symbols, and I'm listening to some you on the the Reverie podcast and some other symbol making guides and such here and there but you know by the by the time it's done you've done your best to make a piece of metal sound nice really nice right and and it's like everybody does that their own way it'll call different things but as much as you had mentioned koide is trying to engineer the process for consistency and and consistency in the quality of his product at the end of the day, you're talking about a metal plate that you hit and it makes a crash sound. So, like, mm-hmm. then the choice, the nuance, the whole rest of the thing, it, this is navigating that. I think you're touching on. Once you're done making the symbol, it's in, you know, fate's hands, right?
1: Yes. I, I like to equate the whole symbol business to, um, like, wine enthusiasts.
0: Oh, sure, sure.
1: I mean, you know, you can seek out and find a nice $15 bottle of wine that suits, it's good, nobody knows about it yet, it's cheap. It, it works, it's fine, it's a good everyday wine to have with dinner. And then, you know, you have your, bump it up, your $200 bottle, then your $2,000 bottle, your $20,000 bottle, it's, it just keeps climbing. And then you bring in all these other factors, such as Who made it? Where it was made? Scarcity, special years—all of these little things combine to match the market value. And there is a point, a tipping point, where it becomes absurd for what (laughs) it is. Yeah. And so you get to your point of it's just a metal plate that makes a noise. And ultimately, that's true. But. Somehow or another, that piece of metal has to inspire you to play it, do anything oh, with it. and speak
0: to me it has and, gotta and there speak is such a thing
1: me. as, yeah, there are bad symbols, there's bad wine, you know, it's all there. But those same factors that drive the price of certain wines and to whom it appeals to and why it's wide open. same thing with symbols, you know, an old K or a Spizzacchino or an art symbol compared to all the rest of the symbols, you know, it's hard to justify if you've been, even if you really know what a great symbol should sound and feel like, if you're not gigging regularly, constantly and can rationalize spending two grand on one symbol, it's a t- it's a difficult case. I'd argue that if you bought a good K or a good Spitzikino at $2,000 for a 20 inch, or more, it's actually the safest investment you can make. That's the only symbol that's gone to, when you go to sell it, it, when you're eventually done with it all, that you're going to get your money back or possibly more, unless just like with the stock market, you found a sleeper and you bought in early while they were cheap and then they happened to become sought after, but you can't bank on that. So it comes back to how rational is it to make this purchase? Me, we'll come around to symbol pricing in a little bit.
0: Yeah, I have it, it I have it written down. Yeah. I do want to I do want to kind of take it back for a minute though cuz Okay. If I think it would be great. If you have an example, maybe you don't. So you had been making symbols for some years, you find Day, your world explodes. Your 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 mind is blown, right? Mm-hmm. Um do you have any particular ex- examples you can point to where your own symbol making process changed? after meeting and seeing this this japanese symbol production did did um, you make any changes in the way you were doing it or did you notice that your symbols got better it sounds it seems like they would
1: they might yes you know you pick up little bits and pieces of information and ideas all along the way with all the people you bump into in this this whole symbol a universe here. So, and, and without there asking I,
0: you for secrets, Burke, I am asking you for secrets. No, whatever you're comfortable sharing.
1: No, I. You know, actually, I will share just about any uh, information with somebody if they ask the right question. It. it I'm a little bit of a kind of <laughs> it was good enough for me. It's good enough for you. Kind of attitude, which is, I will help anybody get through the first, you know, like symbol making 101, 102. And then after that point, it's pointless to dive in unless they're coming to you asking specific questions because the deeper you get into it, the worse it gets, you know, yeah. sort of thing. So it's best to just kind of get somebody up and running and then let them go through the trial and error phase, which is where they actually learn the craft. Uh, making something in the shape of a symbol that sounds like a symbol is relatively easy to actually make it sound like a really good symbol is is next level. And then the true level beyond that is being able to repeat the outcome, not necessarily sonically the same, but of the same quality. And each one of those layers or levels of growth, it's, that's up to the person that's, that's chasing it. Because as with listening to a symbol Trying to teach how to make a symbol, unless we're sitting across from each other and you're seeing the effects of whatever manipulation is going on, and most of my helping other people is online and it's verbal, uh, it's damn near impossible because we, you know, you need to touch, feel, flex, hit all these things because of the, the bronze is a material item and you need to have your hands on it. And you know, there's a way that I like to use in trade shows. To test a symbol and it's strictly just through feeling it, putting it on all my fingertip and hitting it. And in the middle of, you know, five thousand people and, you know, five hundred drum sets going off oh, at an AM it's show. It's impossible. It's impossible, but I can sort of get my ear close to it, hear a little bit of information, but through how it feels through my finger tells me instantly a lot about that symbol. Okay. You can feel the, the vibrations or the, the, the vibrations you don't want to feel is the way I look at it. And that just comes from putting a symbol on my finger, constantly testing symbols and then noticing that certain, certain vibrations will, can be felt with your finger that correspond to things you don't want to hear or feel in a symbol. And that just comes from, from doing it. You know, anybody would pick this up if you did that enough. And also while I'm testing or hammering a symbol, I have earplugs in that I don't remove them until I get towards the last 10% of working where I'm not really making any noise. I'm tapping rather than striking and I can rely on my finger and what little bit of noise I can hear through my earplugs to tell me about if the stresses are starting to, to, to stiffen up in the correct way that I want them to. It's just like when you're driving your car and you look down and you feel something bump across the road. It makes you look up. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's sort of the same thing. You know, you're using other other sensory input to determine what's happening around you rather than your eyes or strictly your ears. You
0: That's know? a great analogy. Yeah. Is that so? Is there is that something you can point to? You brought back from your new knowledge of Koe day symbols making. Was there a change? No,
1: with with day. You know, his method of making cymbals, just due to the tooling and the machinery he has and the the spin forming, that we don't have much of a correlation in our process of making cymbals. Now, he does use a power hammer, and I've had the, the good fortune to work in his shop several times when I'm visiting Japan, and to use the power hammer, one thing I learned about that was using a power hammer in no way... Is a detriment to the symbol making process it's i one day hope to to have a power hammer i have plans i've made up for one that i hope to make for myself it's a very simple rudimentary you know device just to eliminate the wear and tear of hammering metal on metal it's a high impact activity and it's not good for your hands it has in many ways sort of killed my my right hand drumming technique, or especially when I'm hammering, I can't play drums, mm. which is sort of a weird situation to be in. You've got a cymbal you want to demo, and I really can't do a good demo. So I'll have to maybe, when another drummer comes through, say, Hey man, can you, you know, I want to shoot a video of the cymbal. Will you demo it for me? I have a buddy in Richmond, Kofi Shepsu, a jazz drummer, a local guy, and excellent drummer. And when he stops by the visit, I usually will try to. See if I can get a couple symbol dim demos out via him because he's a master player and I'm, I'm not so, but any, I don't know. I, I spun off there. So in terms of what I've picked up from Toshio's shop, yeah. That just that point right there of being able to use a much like a, a power hammer, which is I'm disconnected from it. I'm not feeling the impact in my hand. I can change the parameters on this hammer, like as to how hard it hits, what type of head what type of anvil is on the machine. So you might have to be a little more methodical in your planning out uh, the process of making the symbol, but in no way or uh, will it be detrimental to the process of the end product, the quality of the end product. You would learn to use it just as you would the hammer in your hand once you developed a feel for it. Um, And a lot of your symbol shops now use power hammers. And a lot of the current independent guys have power hammers. And so when we say hand hammered, technically it should be that there's a hammer in your hand and you're hammering, but I've cut some slack in that terminology with the folks that are using power hammers, it's still being controlled by a person. You've just removed a lot of the physical labor involved in the process, but you still have to know how to hammer assemble to have that pan out in the way or direction that you want it to go. So you might hear us with Koei Day and other makers too. We'll use the term hand hammered and there's a power hammer in the back of, you know, the shop somewhere. For a while there, there was a lot of, you know, I would read about people complaining about the use of hand hammer, but I, some of that's gone away. And I think the, the the consumer now is understanding that one man hammering all the time is just not a good thing. <laughs> right. You well, know, it really isn't.
0: Well, to return uh, to what I said before, you come out with a plate that you hit it. You like the way it sounds, you're getting somewhere. If you don't, mm-hmm. you get somewhere else. So and and Right, like a hand hammer a true hand hammer as you described versus a machine hammer will produce a slightly different product but it doesn't mean one is uh superior to the other
1: oh not not at all yeah
0: okay no lovely i I, and and i'm all for you know technology making things better i mean this is a a clear instance where you can't if if it's something you can't do forever because you're swinging a hammer and you've got the carpal tunnel up your arm you know more power i mean
1: your favorite quarterback has a shelf life.
0: More power, power. That's what I say.
1: Yeah. And the same thing goes with your smith. So, you know, pulling out the whatever tools you can to prolong your potential career or enjoyment is I'm all for that.
0: Okay. Okay, okay.
1: And but as far as other stuff, how you know, like Alexino Czech and Austria, I talk with him quite a bit. He is he is definitely in the old K camp of cymbal smiths really knows his stuff regarding old Ks and what they're supposed to sound like and feel like. I, it, it's sort of my personal, he probably hasn't complimented me on a cymbal I've made ever. We're in totally different camps, but he also, and he's, I would, you know I, I consider him well ahead of me in this whole craft. He's very focused in a particular niche and I can respect that. But he will drop little discoveries that he's made along the way that uh that I've incorporated, as with all the symbolsmiths or anything I've read. We all pick up little nuggets of information and try them out that's the it the symbolsmith community is very strong i we don't have any major rivalries between any symbolsmiths. We share information pretty freely and we all support each other so it's it's a real blessing and uh, it's a we have a lot of It is a movement going
0: on right now. It's really awesome. I'm so for it.
1: It's, it's showing up. You can see some of the moves that Zildjian has been making, bringing on Manabu Yamamoto, a Japanese cymbalsmith who also specializes in K's. They've added him to their R&D department. I think that you're going to start seeing at least more of a marketing push from the big companies pushing more of the handmade artisan aspect. They'll have to obviously keep some production element involved, but we're all noticing that the companies are reacting to to the uh, explosion of cymbalsmiths. And the irony is is that they've been doing it the same way we're all doing it in Turkey for the longest time. The difference is, is that Turkey or Turkish cymbal makers in the unfortunate position of having all the companies located in one particular region. They're all competing uh, for the same market share and um, they have the ability to undercut uh, say a factory in the United States or Europe because you don't have to meet the same labor laws, environmental laws, regulations, all of these factors that the rest of us have to deal with in, in terms of large production. So there's a little bit of the symbol smithing thing in the sense of America, Japan, and Europe. There's a little bit of, I want to say, a cultural appropriation going on there. It's, it appears like there's this renaissance of newfound knowledge of the instrument, which has really been around for you know thousands of years. Mm. And the only difference here is that one person works on one symbol from beginning to end, or maybe two people work on the symbol from beginning to end whereas in any other factory setting that disc gets passed around through different phases of construction so it's under a different quality control environment than an independent single man shop who was the is. name of
0: the guy that you said took is now the master smith at zildjian
1: manabu yamamoto and i hope i'm pronouncing his name correctly Wonderful guy lives just outside of Tokyo. I got to spend a day with him a couple years ago, and just talk cymbals all day. He has a very unique method of hammering. It's he's incorporated Japanese metal forming techniques into his cymbal making. He uses a particular type of hammer and hammer stroke that is used in working copper for like kettles and vases and cups and things like that. Copper forming in general where you push the copper along you can change the thickness almost like you're molding clay in a way. And he's incorporated that technique into his symbol making. He also hand forms all his bells and it takes him a really long time to make a symbol compared to maybe what the rest of us are doing. You can, it's possible to make a symbol and you know, two to three hours. I'm not saying a great symbol. I'm just saying make a symbol. Whereas he will spend 30, 40 hours on a symbol.
0: Now, did he essentially take the place of Paul Francis at Zildjian?
1: That I don't know. And I don't think so. I think his degree of knowledge is very niche-oriented. And this is just speculation on my part. His techniques for hammering would not be able to use the dinging. His technique for hammering and making cymbals might not apply to a production setting, even though there may be some knowledge or aspects of his production method that could be incorporated. He has to work with the same variables that we do as hand hammerers, bringing it into the shop uh, where you have repeatability. That's the thing with your Zildjian, if you put out a model, and people like it they expect to be able to buy something very similar the degree of fine tuning that manabu does is probably not possible in a factory setting just due to the cost okay and i you know i'm guessing it's just from my experiences having small production shops that i've worked in and then also doing this hammering hand hammering element
0: okay um, uh, it it's interesting i don't mean to mention Zildjian being uh, like obviously the most famous, well-known cymbal company in the entire world. But then I'm realizing like you know it ties in. It it all matters, and that might bring us next to uh, now. You spoke a lot on Timothy Roberts' podcast on the Reverie podcast about mm-hmm. cymbal pricing and why it should be higher. But And, and how Zildj- what Zildjian Sabian and Pisces are doing kind of play a role in the way the symbol market goes, right? Like what people are willing to pay versus some new renaissance in quality products that are being produced. I think mm-hmm. we'll roll into that. I did just want to take make a note about Paul Francis. Okay. Um, he was on the Drum History podcast in one of their earlier episodes. I mean, 10 – 10 to 20 ish if I can remember correctly and at the end of the episode he tells a story about when he bought his first cymbal and like the awe he felt when he walked into the drum shop and it was like he felt like he belonged there and the way he told the story I just about shed a tear it was so (laughs) beautiful just because I related it was like he was in my mind it was so incredible, and then he comes up short because he, the the drum shop guy sells him a stand. He he needs to he needs a cymbal stand. He's buying a cymbal, but he didn't realize he needed a stand. So the drum shop guy hooks him up, and it was just touching in my heart. So <laughs> it's all well.
1: That's we you know that, that's with everything, isn't it? You know that you're passionate about you you. Uh... You want it well before you can afford it. And then the day comes, you're almost there. And then you have just one more stumbling block before you can acquire it. But it makes you appreciate it all the more, I think. When it doesn't come so easily, like just fall in your lap, like a Christmas gift, per se.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, yes, yes. So I want to kind of roll us into how selling symbols works for you because we have a few symbols here and I think this is where we're going to kind of cut to the next like part two of our of our episode here so um, for those listening goodbye for now and for those continuing to listen thanks thanks for listening to this episode of the Frank's Percussion Podcast brought to you by bronzepie.com and Coie Day Symbols USA you can connect with Burke through bronzepie.com or on Instagram at bronzepie symbols. Reach me at Franks Percussion on Instagram if you have any ideas or want to be on the show. I love you.